Welcome, and we're going to start a brand new topic tonight. And we uh, were talking a little bit a couple of weeks ago about confronting um, uh, different things that happen within our culture. And one of those was homophobia. And I got to thinking that one of the things that might be helpful is if we look at the passages of scripture that are often used against the LGBTQ community. So over the next uh, couple months, uh, at least six or seven weeks, we're going to take one passage of scripture each uh, Wednesday night. We're going to open it up and we're going to try to understand a little bit of what it's trying to say, what it's not trying to say, and where there is maybe some possible question marks on the interpretation of how it's read. So what I hope all of you will do is be uh, quite frank with your questions and comments or doubts, uh, and uh, let's have a good conversation as we use the text to launch us into a subject matter that is at the heart of uh, culture wars. And so, uh, as you know, uh, this has been an ongoing battle uh, for many, many years. There seems to me to be two culture war issues that have been a part of our culture for a number of decades. One of them is abortion, which, as you know, this past year, um, Roe v. Wade was overturned, and now it's left up to the individual states. The other uh, is uh, LGBT rights and uh, their belonging within the culture. So I can refer you back to the previous study that we did called Intersection on Wednesday nights that uh, how this gained momentum to the point where we find that the gains that have been made by the LGBT community uh, at times seem to be at risk, at least uh, by those that want to push back on it. And so I think the information that we're going to encounter will be helpful uh, to not only our own understanding of scripture, but also to interact with often things that are said within the culture that are just off base. And I'm going to give you some examples of that as we lead into the topic tonight. So here's how we're going to structure our evening. We're going to give you some introductory thoughts, and then we're going to turn to the book of Genesis, chapters 18 and 19, and that's going to be our primary text with a couple of cross-references where uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned in other places of scripture. So here's what I'd like to do is just uh, get started with uh, a few things that I think are instrumental to our understanding of the topic that we'll look at. Uh, first of all, in the Bible, there are primarily six main scripture references that are often used to speak uh, against uh, same-sex um, relationships, and those are going to be the primary uh, references that we're going to look at over the next six, seven weeks. These are often called the clobber passages. And one of the reasons it's called the clobber passages is because these are often used to try to beat uh, LGBT individuals into submission. 
I don't think it's very successful. All it does is anger to, uh, uh, people, but at the same time, that's the motivation. Thirdly, uh, it is often used to protect a theological tradition. And the theological tradition uh, is primarily the evangelical church, and they see this as a cornerstone issue. Uh, if you pull this apart, then other things will come tumbling down. Often these clobber passages are used to inflict a, a lifetime of pain upon the LGBT community, but sometimes it is so taken to heart by individuals, there's often a lot of self-hatred that and shame that is carried by individuals when this topic is brought up. So let's take a look at the six clobber passages. Uh, here they are. They're listed from Genesis through 1 Timothy. One we'll look at is Genesis 19. There's a couple of references uh, in the book of Leviticus. That'll probably be a tougher lesson than tonight. Uh, I really do think this first one here is quite simple, uh, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, a little bit harder is the mention in Leviticus, and the hardest reference of all is Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. What is it that Paul is saying, and uh, why does he single out uh, the issue that he does even though it's not the only issue. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, and 1 Timothy 1, 9 and 10 are very similar. These two uh, actually uh, go together in the sense of they're trying to say the same exact thing. So these are your references, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Sometimes there's a couple of other passages that are included in this, but... Um, I, I don't think they are very instrumental. Um, I'll make reference to a couple of them tonight, but we'll go uh, back to uh, Genesis 19 in a moment. Here's what I want to do is I want to um, uh, just see how the clobber passages are used. First of all, for century, this collection of different references have been used primarily to try to convict people to uh, submit to the idea that the longings that they have for someone of, of the same gender are sinful. And of course, conviction is uh, comes along on the heels of that. Secondly, in many ways, I think the purpose of the use of the club or passages is to try to continue to keep the LGBTQ community in the closet. Uh, there is kind of a prejudice there that suggests that they shouldn't come out of the closet. They have their own community. Uh, don't make us feel uncomfortable. Thirdly, uh, to threaten punishment and eternal hell uh, is a way of um, trying to guilt people and manipulate people and force people to uh, do something that is uh, desirous. It's a means of control by a particular group of people. Uh, rather than celebrating uh, some of the mysteries of God's uh, good gifts in creation, uh, it is often a way of trying to um, force people to change their mind. And 
all of us know that if you try to force people, they'll stiffen their neck. And that's where I think there is this constant butting of heads uh, between non-affirming uh, people and the LGBT community. So I don't know if you remember the story of the Sword of Damocles. Um, it's a story that uh, suggests that there's a sword that is hanging over the head of individuals and it's being held up by a thread. Uh, actually, that goes back to um, an actual ruler by the name of Dionysus, uh, where this, I don't know if it's folklore or uh, if it's uh, something in terms of urban legend, I'm not quite sure of that, but it has been connected historically. And that has become kind of a, a metaphor that is often used that people are cowering because they never know when this sword is going to decapitate them should it break loose. So that will bring us now to this. Um, I think this is very important because. The Bible, uh, in order for it to mean anything to anyone, has to be interpreted. And uh, different people interpret the Bible in different ways. Um, the Bible really doesn't say anything uh, until we try to interpret it. And the minute you open the page and you begin reading a passage of scripture, you are already engaged in the subject matter of what is called hermeneutics, that is, trying to determine what is the best way to garner meaning from the text. And of course, you're using your own perspective, you're using your own life experience, you're using your own culture and your own set of circumstances, and that influences everything by way of how you're going to look at the text. So in the evangelical world, the straight, I'm putting that in quotations, straight lens that is used to interpret scripture uh, usually comes out like this. Uh, number one, it's not a sin to have um, same-sex desires, but it is a sin to act upon it or to practice it. So um, the, the sin is not in the homosexuality itself, it's in the action uh, that is um, acted upon. Secondly, it usually is framed not by a way of orientation. It is usually framed as a choice, a sexual preference that is intentionally made by an individual. Of course, people that are allies understand that this choice forces people, one, into the closet, or two, um, it causes people a great dismay because they know that they uh, they were born a, a particular way, even though other people won't recognize that, and there's an internal struggle. Thirdly, homosexuality is just something that happens when the lights go out. In other words, um, gay individuals are sequestered to the bedroom in the eyes of the straight lens that is often used to interpret the Bible. Everything is used in terms of sexuality rather than understanding and orientation, understanding that an approach to life is all encompassing. Uh, when I hear people say the gay lifestyle, I chuckle 
under my breath because the lifestyle aspect is the same lifestyle choices we all make. And that is, we all desire safety. We all desire purpose and meaning. We all desire uh, a, a nice home, a good job, uh, health benefits, uh, being able to retire and travel and all those type of things are choices that everybody makes. It's not just um, a particular community that does that, even though uh, it is often said that, you know, this is something that completely defines the gay community. And that is, that's all they ever think about, sex, 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 right? So um, this orientation that uh, is often talked about is often uh, challenged by saying people could change and will help you change uh, what is often known as conversion therapy. Now, if you do any research on this, you'll find that it is a torturous thing uh, that people have been submitted to by their parents or their pastor or other individuals in their community. And usually the outcome is not very good. The only people that come out of it are people that are willing to kind of lose their self-identity and to agree with those that are trying to change them. That's where you will get some testimonials. I was once uh, gay, but now I'm straight, you know, that type of thing. Lastly, homosexuals are to be feared because they are groomers. This is the one that raises the hair on the back of my neck. And that is the gay community is out to make everyone gay. That's, it's just ridiculous. Okay. It's ridiculous. And yet it is what is used often to control the populace. And that is fear. If you can instill fear in the hearts and lives of individuals, you can control a lot of things. And you just, if you'll notice how our society works, it operates on fear it uh, manipulates fear and it massages fear for the sake of other purposes. And that's what often happens here. So let me uh, let me stop there. I threw out several things before we get to Exodus, uh, not Exodus, Genesis chapter 19. Is there any comments, any questions that you have so far? I actually have two comments. Yeah, go ahead. Um, one is, um, me and my wife have talked about this, and then we said it several times. It's like, if it's a choice, why would somebody choose? Why would somebody choose to be, you know, something number one that so they know at, at the you know at the time that we were all you know talking about this way back in the eighties, seventies, eighties. It, there was a big stigma to it. Um, I think it's it's gotten a little progressive, you know, you know, more progressive in the younger generations. And the second one about the groomers, um, it, it makes me think of my my younger son who is 26, and you know, he, you know, I, I'm not crazy about it, but he goes to bars and he says there's gay guys who hit on him and they know he's straight. Mm. So I. I mean, there are some. I mean, sure. it, it's obviously not all of them, but mm -hmm. I, I think there is a little bit of that. Sure. But well, the stories, I think, are blown up. 
Yeah, I do think they're exaggerated. And I do think also that there's a lot of straight guys that hit on women um, and make advances as well. So it's not just something that is true to a particular community. I think that is true of people that uh, do want to engage some type of uh, relationship, whether it's emotional and or physical too. So um, that's not talked about a whole lot, but um, this is often used in this particular topic. Anybody else? So here's you'll you'll find one of the um, the um, typos that uh, <laughs> when I was uh, talking this into the PowerPoint, you'll see there it's not a part tied, it's apartheid. Uh, it's uh, so you can see it on the screen here. I uh, I corrected it. So. The Bible is often used for a lot of different things. Uh, over the years, it's been used to justify the Crusades. For many years in South Africa, apartheid uh, was uh, justified by the Bible. Sometimes um, it's used to justify segregation, uh, to uh, persecute Jews. Even Nazi Germany used the Bible to justify the Holocaust. So you can really prove anything from the Bible if you want to pull individual verses out and use them that way. Um, this uh, is a consequence that I think happens when you pull out individual verses that kind of work in favor of the worldview that you want. It can lead to other things. It can lead to distrust. So when science has come out and there's been a lot of research in this, and has said, no, this is something uh, significant. The gay community we have seen are wired um, uh, differently than the straight community. And you can look into this. There's a lot of very sophisticated uh, research that has been done in this. So where, how do you get away from that? Well, the Bible sometimes uh, is used in such a way to be interpreted literally uh, as an opposition to scientific discoveries. And so sometimes what happens is we get stuck back in an age that is thousands and thousands of years old, but because it's stated a particular way in the Bible, uh, you know, God said it, I believe it, and that's the way it is. Even though research has shown that uh, things are different. Um, and so sometimes opposition occurs to scientific research. I think also there's a lot of picking and choosing that goes on. When you use the scriptures, you will choose some things that you think are codified laws that are uh, timeless and other things that you think are time bound. So I know a lot of people in uh, conservative fundamental uh, Christianity that would ignore all the food laws that are in Leviticus, but they'll pick out those couple of verses that we'll look at in the book of Leviticus regarding this topic. Well, there's nowhere in Leviticus that gives you the permission to, to uh, segregate two different types of laws out. It's all one law that's given. 
So, you know, you can't pick and choose is what I'm trying to say. Uh, what you have to do is understand that it was given at a particular point in time. And then when later uh, Jesus uh, summarizes what the law was intending to do, to love God and to love your neighbor, uh, all of a sudden he says, hey, all the laws fulfilled, uh, all the law and the prophets are fulfilled in me. And he uh, whittles it down to those uh, two all-encompassing perspectives of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. So what you find is a lot of selectivity uh, as to what pertains to laws uh, that should always be kept versus laws that are cultural. However, we do need to understand that there are a lot of cultural laws uh, that uh, whether it was given by God for a particular purpose and time, but that is no longer true, which is what Peter learned in his rooftop vision in Acts chapter 10, or uh, whether it was a way of protecting um, a community uh, from disease and other things, what we find is it has a specific cultural context. Now, what often happens with selecting certain laws that are to be forever held or to, uh, versus uh, those that are cultural, you also have a lot of what I call selective literalism as well. So you'll hear people say, I take the Bible literally. That's great. But when uh, Jesus says to poke out your eye and cut off your hand, do you still want to interpret that literally? Or is he using that metaphorically? So, you know, it's very important to understand that there is a lot of figurative type of things that are stated in the Bible, and you got to recognize figures of speech and similes and metaphors and other uh, expressions of language. And um, it's more important that we take the Bible seriously than we take the Bible literally word for word. And yet a lot of people will plant their flag in the ground and say, I take the Bible literally. And all you got to do is uh, look at a few verses and you'll see, well, no, I don't take that literally. Obviously that's figurative. Well, you know, again, you've got to qualify that a little bit. You can't just make statements like that, that are blanket uh, uh, statements. So we're getting closer here to um, uh, Genesis 19. I just want to give you a couple more things to think about. These pertain to all the references, not just Genesis 19. So um, sometimes there's really outlandish conclusions. Um, you know, since the gay community can't make babies, they recruit other people through pedophilia. Nonsense. It's nonsense. Um, Homosexuals can't control their lust for other men. Therefore, they are a threat to military preparedness. There's a whole big deal during the Clinton administration about don't ask, don't tell. Do you remember that? We do want the, uh, the gay community to serve their country. We just don't want uh, other people to know that they're gay. Thirdly, homosexual relationships are short-lived. And so, well, the right of marriage should be denied because it's it's uh, more of a physical thing than love and that. So you see, these things become really outlandish. 
here is the one where really the rubber hits the road. Homosexuals are a threat to the nation's values, and therefore they should be denied certain federal and state protections for things like fair housing, uh, um, you know, fair employment uh, practices and that type of thing. So where does all this come from? So the next two slides will show you that it's both ancient and modern. So here we go. So some of the ancient church fathers, John Christendom was called uh, the Prince of Pe uh, Preachers back in his day. And he said, homosexual acts are worse than murder. Thomas Aquinas, a Catholic theologian, uh, in the 1200s said, unnatural sex is worse than sexual sin, for it harms God himself. I don't know how that works. I don't know how it harms God, but um, that's what he said. And then the reformer Martin Luther said, the vices of Sodom is an unparalleled enormity. Sodomy craves what is contrary to nature. Now, I want you to notice right here this word sodomy. It comes out of the Sodom and Gomorrah story. And we'll come back to that in a moment. It has become part of the cultural um, verbiage that is often used, not only against the LGBTQ community, but in other, um, other situations as well. Now, here are some of the modern uh, things that are said by contemporary religious leaders. Um, uh, Jim Dobson, Focus on the Family, uh, talks about how the homosexual agenda is a beast. It wants our kids. It is a particular danger to your wide-eyed boys who have no idea what demoralization is planned for them. So you can see how this raises fear, especially Jim Dobson, who became the parent to all parents, telling parents how to raise their kids uh, in the 70s and 80s especially. Jerry Falwell Sr., he's no longer with us, he passed away, uh, but he did establish the moral majority, and uh, he said this one time, homosexuals are in the march in this country. Please remember, homosexuals do not reproduce, they recruit, and they are after my children and your children. And then lastly, and most closely to home, is Pat Robertson of the 700 Club, who said homosexuality is a type of demonic possession. And then he blames the coronavirus on the way that we have handled this topic. He said the coronavirus is God's way to hold us guilty for abortion and same-sex marriage. So all of that was just a way of getting into the topic that we're going to look at over the next several weeks. Do you have any comments, uh, questions, concerns before we open up to Genesis 19. Okay, so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 19 tonight. It's a lengthy passage. Um, the, the summary of it, though, is pretty simple. Um, the story is that of the destruction of two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. We don't know where it's at. Uh, a lot of people think that it's around the uh, salt uh, uh, reserves area around the Dead Sea, um, and this the destruction of these cities happened to come about by way of sulfur of some sort, but there's a lot of mystery in, in this text in terms of what actually happened to the cities. 
uh, archaeologists uh, cannot pinpoint exactly where Sodom and Gomorrah is. But what we do find is that the text uh, seems to say that the cities were destroyed uh, with fireballs from heaven, which if, if we were in Hawaii, I would say sounds like volcanic activity. However, um, in the ancient Near East, um, this particular area, was it subject to this type of thing? Um, that's up for debate. The traditional interpretation is that there's some visitors that come to Sodom and Gomorrah, and as they come into the town, um, the townspeople uh, gather around the residents of Lot, who welcomes them in and feeds them and houses them and pounds on the door and demand that these two individuals come out because they wanted to have sex with them. So this then becomes kind of the, the, the basic outline of the story. However, there's a context to this that I think is important for us to understand. And to get to it, we have to understand, first of all, how Old Testament stories work. Many stories are passed down for hundreds and hundreds of years before they're written down. So why are these stories told around campfires for centuries before they are written down and placed in a book like we call Genesis? Well, when you approach stories like this, the first thing you have to begin with is our own assumptions tend to be poured back in on the text. Now, one of the assumptions that we have about stories that are like this is that um, these are true stories. Uh, all the facts have been told and it happened just exactly the way it reads here. Now, if you begin with this assumption, let's say if you were a fly on the wall in Sodom and Gomorrah and you observed what took place when these two individuals went into the city, is this how the text uh, would be written down as an eyewitness? The other thing is when you look at stories in the Old Testament, you have to do some discerning. Are these stories historical? Are they mythological? Or are they a combination? Um, so the way I wanted to put it here is, um, is the book of Genesis in particular that we're looking at right this second, is it like a dash cam that was attached to a donkey? And it's like a police footage uh, from their body camera so that you see exactly what happened uh, the way it went down. Well, I don't think that's the way it works. I think after hundreds of years, many of these stories are told in such a way that there's often parallels with other stories and it builds upon them. So what I mean by that is apparent with this. So if you were to turn back a few chapters, and you don't have to, I'm just going to tell you in the story of the flood, 
there's a parallel with this story in the way it unfolds. So in Genesis 6 through 9, we're told that humanity is sinful. The door of the ark is shut, keeping out the wicked. The guilty are destroyed by God. Only Noah and his family escape. Noah gets drunk and his son commits some type of sinful act by looking upon his nakedness. And then Noah's offspring is cursed. When you come to Genesis 19, it's the exact same parallel. Sodom and Gomorrah are cities that are sinful, and the door of Lot's house is shut, keeping out the wicked that want to uh, commit some type of act with uh, these two visitors. Uh, the cities on the plain are destroyed by God, and then Lot, who is the resident in Sodom and, uh, and um what we find is that he has two daughters, and they play into this story as well. The two daughters who run to escape end up living in a cave, and they get their father Lot drunk so that he might have sex with them so that they might have offspring. This goes on in Genesis 19. Um, then in Deuteronomy, we find that the offspring that come from these two girls, Deuteronomy 23, 3 through 6, they are the cursed generation. So you can see that these two accounts have intentionally been set up to parallel each other because they do have something in common. And here's what they have in common. Why did God destroy the world? Because it became so violent, okay? Why was Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed? Because they too had become so violent. So what you'll find is there's some parallels that are going on here. And I think the story is structured in such a way that like Noah, only ends up saving his family because no one else would listen, so too Lot and his daughters are the only ones that are saved because no one else would lit, uh, listen as well. Even though Abraham will try to intercede uh, on behalf of Sodom because he knows his nephew Lot is there, and he uh, there's an interesting thing that happens um, in the text, and the text talks about in chapter 18 of Genesis, Abraham pleading uh, for the three visitors that come to see him not to go and destroy Sodom if there's 50 righteous people. If there's 40 righteous people, 30, 20, gets finally down to 10, and the promise is, I won't destroy the city if there are 10 righteous people. And yet, not even 10 out of a thousand. Most scholars think that the city of Sodom probably had about a thousand residents. Um, you can't even find 10 people that would do the right thing. So now the question becomes, what is it that they're trying to do? So let's begin in Genesis um, 19 and take a look at verse 1. So we'll read this as we go along here. 
So I want you to keep in the back of your mind Genesis chapter 18. Um, Genesis 18 talks about Abraham. He's sitting under a shade tree. Uh, how apropos. And there's three visitors that come along and he shows them hospitality. Take a look at chapter 18. Then we'll get to chapter 19. It says the Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and he saw three men standing nearby. And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. And so then it goes on and he breaks out a, a, a tender calf that is prepared as a meal in verse seven, verse eight. He brings out curds and milk. I mean, he just lavishes uh, hospitality upon them. And, and then it's revealed in verse 16 of chapter 18, when the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. And then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Keep this in the back of your mind. That is a restatement of the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12. Okay, I'm going to bless you and the nations are going to be blessed through you. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him, the Abrahamic covenant. And then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous. I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So now Abraham is concerned. His nephew Lot lives in this city, and that's where Abraham will begin to intercede on behalf of the city of Sodom, looking for, as it turns out, 10 righteous people. Now, let's come to chapter 19. The two angels arrived. Now, there were three people in chapter 18, but there's two that arrive at Sodom in the evening. That's a whole theological discussion. Who is the third one? Many scholars think it is um, a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord uh, as the third individual, and that the other two are angels. And that's what the text says in verse 1 of chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting at the gateway of the city. Okay, ding, 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 Abraham sitting under a shade tree, Lot is sitting at the city gate. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Abraham bowed down. Lot bows down. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet. Ding, ding, ding. That's what Abraham did for his visitors. Spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. 
but he insisted so strongly that they did not go with him and enter his, and uh, they did go with him rather, and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the, uh, the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that, they, so that we can have sex with them. So first thing to know, the parallel now between Abraham and Lot. They both show gracious hospitality. They both provide for their guests. They are individuals that um, bend over backwards to meet their needs and show acceptance to them. Um, and the, here in this context, a lot is going to go out and try to intercede just like Abraham did. Um, but this time for the angels, take a look at verse six, Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do to them uh, what you like. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Now, <laughs> Sure. Lot offers his two virgin daughters up to the men of the city uh, to allow them to rape his daughters. Ah. Um, and he's doing this as a way of trying to intercede on behalf of these two visitors. Uh, and what happens is they begin to try to force their way into the house. And um, it's interesting that the angels, verse 10, inside reach out, pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old with blindness, so that they could not find the door. So there's this divine intervention that takes place that allows Lot and his family to escape. Um, and that's what they say next. They, you know, get out of here, basically. The text goes on. And it's interesting uh, as he's pleading for his family to escape with him. It says here in verse 14, the son-in-laws thought he was joking. So, um, you know, they, they write it off and they stay behind. Okay, so that's kind of the bare bones of the text. The key question now becomes not just what is this activity and what is it telling us, but you've got to keep in mind these contrasting postures. And that is Abraham and Lot are paralleled here between these two passages of scripture. Why? What is it that's trying to be communicated? And if you see this word here, the most essential value, the quintessential value or virtue of the ancient Near East is hospitality. Now, there's all kinds of ways of looking at this text. In, um, in Kent Dobson's study Bible, 
there is a, uh, a paragraph that he inserts in with this um, text in Genesis 18 and 19 that he calls the desert law. The desert law. What is that? Well, the law hasn't even been given yet. But here's what he says. He says, um, in the ancient world, hospitality was a high moral ideal, a kind of law of the desert. All nomads or semi-nomadic people needed hospitality from time to time. Welcoming a foreigner or stranger into your tent ensured the same treatment when the tables were turned, when you needed that type of uh, uh, ex, um, provision. And so what he, what he says, and I'm not gonna read the whole thing, I think that's very insightful here. What the text is trying to get across is at that point in time, the great value that people that were on the move throughout the desert, uh, the great value or a, a virtue or a sign of righteousness was you're willing to have an open heart and an open mind to invite people in you've never met into your home and provide food and shelter to them. Now that that is kind of way beyond the way we think because we lock our doors, right? And we have security uh, because we don't want to let anybody in that we don't know. In that day and age, though, hospitality was this great virtue, unless you didn't want to show hospitality. And the only way you could drive people out of your vicinity, your neighborhood, your community, your city, is by treating them so bad that they would not at all want to pass through your city again. Keep that in the back of your mind. Questions or comments? Can you hear me by any chance? I can now, yes. All right, miracles. Um, <laughs> Judges 19 is quite similar to these two. Mm -hmm. And there again, there's a parallel where the ben, I think the one guy takes them into their house and they offer up the two women. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. And sometimes that's an extra clobber verse sometimes that is used. But I really do think that the parallel there is more on the daughters than on, um, on the subject matter of, of homosexuality and same-sex uh, attraction and relationship. So that's why I didn't put it on to the clobber list. Okay. But, but you're very insightful, Shelley, because there is a parallel between Genesis 19 and Judges, what chapter is it again? Judges what? 19. 19. Um, Judges 19. Okay, thank you. So um, there is a parallel there, though, and um, that's important to take note of. That's, yeah. Other comments, questions? Okay, so let's get to the subject, the, the core of the subject. So what is it that this gang of people uh, that come to Lot's door, what is it that they're trying to do? Now, 
it has been interpreted by conservative Christianity that all these guys wanted to have homosexual relationships with the two angels. So um, is that what they are really desirous of? So I want you to notice a couple of things here, okay? Take a look at verse four. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. Every person, every man, young and old. This sounds more like a gang activity than it is people that are driven by lust for, I guess angels are quite handsome. They must be, right? <laughs> so what's going on here? It seems as though one of the things that happens by the way they respond to Lot is that somehow Lot um, was able to make his way into the city of Sodom, and he was an individual that was considered, though, to be a foreigner. We know this by what they say in verse 9. These, this gang says, get out of our way. This fellow came here as a foreigner, speaking of Lot, and now he wants to play the judge, and we're going to treat you worse than them. Somehow Lot made his way into the city. Somehow he was not refused, but these two men are. But notice what's in the back of the mind of this gang. What's in the mind of this gang is he's a foreigner. He's an outlier. He's an outcast. He doesn't belong here. Well, they let him belong here for a while, for whatever reason. But now he's bringing other foreigners under his roof. Hey, we're going to draw the line somewhere. Okay? So it seems as though the primary reason why they are gathering around Lot's house is not for sexual carousal. It's to prevent foreigners from coming into their city. With that in mind, then how are they going to prevent these individuals from coming into the city? What is some of the, the worst things that you can do to people so that they will turn away and never come back? Well, you shame them and you torture them. And one of the things that is in, in the core of this passage, and like I said, this particular passage, I think, out of all the clobber passages, is the easiest one. This is about gang rape. It is about intimidation. It's about power over. It's about making sure that the foreigner, the uh, people that are not wanted, uh, get used and abused in such a way that they will not insist on coming into the city or bringing other people into the city either. So it's a very closed 
uh, uh, city. It's a it's a very gated community uh, that's trying to keep people out of their city. So here's, I think, where it gets clearer. In the ancient world, sex is not just intimacy. In war, it's also an act of humiliation. It is a way of uh, uh, torturing uh, people that you are conquering. It seems to me that there's nothing in this passage that is about homoerotic desire. It's about dishonoring these two visitors. It's about stripping them of their worth. It's about shaming uh, their masculinity and taking away their humanity. Uh, it's a very violent, shameful thing. And it's in contrast to Abraham and Lot's hospitality. So this is not about same-sex attraction. It's not about love. It's about violence. It's about using sex as a weapon. It's about uh, raping these two angels. And it's a way of uh, showing the world how powerful and unified this gang is in their solidarity of trying to prevent these two men from coming in and staying. There's some common sense here as well. And the common sense is, remember what I just read? Every man, young and old, from every section of the city surrounded the house. Now, we know through scientific research that the gay community is only a very small percentage of the population. It is not nearly... Um, uh, there's not nearly a, a chance that every man in the city of Sodom was gay. Even it talks about young and old. It seems as though that this is type of a, a guerrilla warfare that's going on here where these men are going to train these younger boys about preventing people from coming into the city. Well, why would they do that? It's always about resources. And it's all about um, who's going to control the land. And it seems to me that in the area of Sodom, this gang wants to control the resources, wants to control the land, and doesn't want to be hospitable to other people that might be traveling through that section. Okay, does that make any sense to you? Do you want to do any pushback on that at all? Any questions? Okay, then let's think about this for a moment. Lot makes a foolish offer, right? He tells this gang that his daughters are virgins. 
And I think part of what the storyteller is trying to do is to shock us. How could Lot do that to his own family? Okay. But here's the point. It's not just Lot. It's humanity as a whole. How can we do this to each other? How could a whole gang of men come and treat others the way they treated these two angels? Why is there such violence that is expressed? You know, gang rape is not unusual, especially in settings of incarceration and in prison. And you know, if you watch um, different, you know, at one time I was watching, this is several years back, there was a show called Prison Break, and it shows the gang activity within uh, these places. And I think one of the things that the storyteller is trying to do is to shock us into a way of saying, how can humanity be so vile? How can humanity be so violent? How can humanity not treat other people as brothers and sisters? Because we're all human beings. Well, here's the deal. We're able at times to twist a story in such a way that we can make it something that it's not. And I think this is one of the cases. And what has been done to this text is sodomy became part of the language um, uh, that has been used for many, many years. Sodomy, remember in, a, in the quote earlier that I gave to you, um, Martin Luther used the word sodomy, this all the way back in the days of the Reformation. Well, what is this? Sodomy is a term that never appears in the Bible. But it is a term that is any type of sexual activity other than uh, vaginal penetration. So what you have is a, a pejorative term that's saying any type of sexual activity, whether it is um, mutual or not, is deviant. Now, many within the Christian community would say that sexuality is given for uh, reproduction purposes only, not for pleasure, not for intimacy. So you have this, this lingo, you have this language that is often developed so when you hear the word sodomy, does it, it just sounds yucky, doesn't it? It just sounds, ooh. And yet at the same time, what we find is that it is used in such a way to intimidate or at least um, make us think about certain things within a certain lens. But the term sodomy doesn't appear in the Bible. It's, it doesn't, you can't find it. You find Sodom, the city, but you don't find the word sodomy. 
Okay. Now, how can we understand that this is the idea of a people that are inhospitable? Well, three places in the uh, Old Testament, what time do we have? Eight, oh, eight. Three times in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. It's mentioned very briefly in Isaiah 1.9 and Jeremiah 23.14, only as um, a mention that God will judge the Israelites um, for their idolatry in much the same way that he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. But the insightful passage is found in the book of Ezekiel. And I do want you to turn there, Ezekiel chapter 16. When you get to Ezekiel chapter 16, there's much more insight that is given as to what was going on in Sodom. In chapter 16, if you'll make your way down to verse 49 and 50, and it, it's stated very clearly what the sin of Sodom was. There's no mention here of homosexuality. There's no mention here of any type of homoerotic behavior. Verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. And then he goes back and he talks about Samaria. See, this is an illustration for Ezekiel for his own contemporary um, uh, purposes in preaching and prophesying. But he gives to us a definition of what took place in uh, Genesis 19. Sodom was guilty of what? Being arrogant, overfed, unconcerned, and not helping the poor and needy. Or in another word, they were inhospitable. They didn't look out for their brother. So we mentioned in passing Cain and Abel on Sunday, and Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that is, yes, we are. We are our brother's keeper. That's part of what it means to be human, that we're to watch out for and care for and provide for each other. So the sin of Sodom was they had plenty, they had resources, but they didn't want to share it at all, even though it might just have been a meal or an overnight shelter. Now, I don't hear this in the exegesis of Genesis 19. It always focuses in on the sexual sin that committed there. Because this would say a lot to a, a lot of us who have it pretty well off that are we as inhospitable to other people as is being mentioned here? Is it always about me and my control of things? And so what you find is that Ezekiel lays it out on the table for us. This is pretty easy. 
it's not something that we need to scratch our theological head about and say, what does this text mean? Ezekiel tells us what it means. But a lot of people, but that doesn't serve the purposes of other people. They want to use the Genesis 19 text to accuse and shame and control a particular group of people. You have some thoughts, some comments. Okay, so there's two places in the New Testament where Sodom and Gomorrah are mentioned. And here's where we're going to uh, finish for tonight. Go to the New Testament book of Matthew, and you're going to make your way to chapter 10 of Matthew. And when you get there, uh, Jesus is going to reference Sodom and Gomorrah. But let's take a look at the context. Okay, so in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. Then the uh, disciples are named. And then in verse 5, it says, these 12 Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or any of the town of the Samaritans. He wants them him to, them to initially go to the house of Israel. Verse 9 says that when they go out into these communities, not to uh, take any money from the people that they are ministering to. It says, do not get any gold or silver or copper, verse 9 to take with you on your uh, in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or staff, for workers are worth their keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there. Well, who is the worthy person? Well, the person that's going to let you stay in their house. Ah, hospitality again. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. Now, if the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If not, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, well, shake the dust off your feet. And when you leave that uh, home or town, in other words, be on your way. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. So, in Jesus' mind, he's thinking of Sodom and Gomorrah as he's telling his disciples to go out and to trust the hospitality of people to take them into their homes as they are ministering to them. And if there are people that are closed-minded with closed doors, then just go on your way. Just go on your way. Do you see he's building upon what has already been laid down in the Sodom story? In other words, just go on your way. Uh, their judgment will be on them for not having this deep value of hospitality. Okay? So again, the disciples are outsiders. They're, they're the people that don't belong as they go through these villages. But they're trusting on the hospitality of good people to take care of them. Some thoughts or questions there? 
Okay, one more. All right, got to go all the way to the end of the New Testament to one chapter. Um, it's called the book of Jude. It comes right before the book of Revelation. And um, Jude is talking here a little bit about um, ungodly people. And he dips back into his understanding of the Old Testament stories. And as he does, he mentions Sodom and Gomorrah. So look at verse five. It says, though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Um, at first glance, you might say, see, it says right there, sexual immor immorality and perversion. But the context is not human-to-human -human activity. The first reference is when angels did not keep their proper position of authority. Many people believe that this is the reference back to Genesis chapter 6, where um, there is some kind of copulation between the human and divine. Um, that's a whole nother topic where angels and, and um, human beings produced an offspring. Um, and then and then he references Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, the sexual activity is the same as the previous one out of Genesis 6. In Genesis 19, these uh, men wanted to have uh, used sex with angels as a way of, of driving them out of the town. So my take on Jude is that it's talking about a divine and human coupling together, not between human beings. Uh, I don't think this text has anything to do with homosexuality. I think it has to do with the writer Jude thinking about a couple of Old Testament stories where uh, there is judgment that is deserving because of the immorality and perverse uh, nature of the people that were involved in it. Okay, last thought that I have anyways. Uh, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, I think is serving as a story. Um, when we looked at Genesis 18, what you'll find is that it specifically is referencing the Abrahamic covenant. And the Abrahamic covenant had a condition in it that God was going to bless the nation of Israel if they in turn would bless the nations. They, he, they were blessed to be a blessing. And it seems as though the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is illustrative of a type of people that are not worthy of the Abrahamic covenant blessings because of their wicked 
and violent expression toward outsiders. So my take on Genesis 19 is it's all about exclusion. And it's all about torturing people to make sure they know that they are humiliated and excluded and that they'll never come back through and threaten the use of some of the resources, as Ezekiel told us in chapter 16. So let's see if, um, if you have any questions that you want to talk about in the next minute or two before we close off tonight. Um, any thoughts? I give you full permission to do pushback if you don't see it the same way. It's okay. <laughs> I'm just kind of telling you how I think this text brings all the components together that we see in the chapters there. Any thoughts? You are a very... No, I just never, I just never noticed... I never noticed the Jude passage. I guess I'll have to, I don't know, that That just, I'm going to have to read that a couple of times. <laughs> How does it strike you initially, Tony? I mean, initially it strikes me as um, gave them, you know, I guess I'm separating the two, the, the um angels in chains with Sodom and Gomorrah and their mm -hmm. surrounding towns mm -hmm. um, gave themselves up to the sexual immorality and perversion. Um, I don't know. That's how it strikes me. Mm -hmm. But I'm, you know, I'm still, <laughs> I guess I'm still figuring this out. Well, we all are. And, uh, you know, it, it's a journey that's never done. I mean, all I'm sharing with you is it's not a simple topic. And it's a topic that I think has been confused and muddied up by uh, certain types of biblical interpretations that serve certain types of political agendas. And I think that um, to revisit it is important. And whether we come to the same conclusion or not is okay. It doesn't, that's fine. It's just that we're actually wrestling with the text and we're trying to see how all the components of it fit together. That we're not, you know, just pulling out individual verses as a way of trying to use as a proof text. I think that's the most important thing to take away. So one thing I also think about is, um, so the reason you, you remember, um, obviously you remember Abraham and, and Lot kind of parted ways. Mm -hmm. And Abraham said, pick where you want to go and I'll go the other way. Right. And he picked the land of by Sodom and Gomorrah mm -hmm. because the land was, very good for cattle. Mm -hmm. So to me, that sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah were, were kind of blessed with some material goods. And, and that kind of makes more sense that they, um, 
you know, that they they were being blessed and they weren't being a blessing. Right. Yeah. They had resources. And that's a great, again, you're doing a good job of even going back further than I did tonight in Genesis. Part of that story is the reason Lot chose to go there is because of the amount of resources that they had there. He knew what would be best for his cattle, you know, and um, and flocks and that type of thing. Good, 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 good. Very good insights. Anybody? Yeah, go question. ahead. Um, you know, lots, Lot offers his daughters up, but mm -hmm. yet down in verse 14, they said they were pledged to be married. So why would he do that if he knew that he would, they were pledged to be married? Well, I think what's going on here, remember we read on, on one of the verses there, that the son-in-laws uh, did not uh, believe. They thought it was a joke, and they did not oh, okay. see the city. So I guess the way I put this together is, were they married or were they betrothed to be married? They're both virgins still. Okay. Yeah, they were, it says they were, they were pledged to be married. Yeah. So it seems as though the modern terminology we would use is they were engaged. Okay. Yeah. Um, and, and they were going to go with their, their dad and flee mm -hmm. the city, but their fiancés um, said, nah, you know, I don't believe that. Okay. A joke. And they didn't go. So when you mm -hmm. read how, um, Lot first goes to a small community called, I think it was Zoar, I think it was, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, and and he hangs out in this city for a little while, and then he doesn't even feel safe there. And they mm -hmm. flee out of that community, and the text tells us that they were living in a cave for a while. And mm -hmm. so I think the daughters think that this is our lot no <laughs> no pun intended um, this is our lot in life right that we're going to live yeah. the rest of our days in a cave how are we going to have uh kids how are we going to have a family mm. and that's where they um uh get lot drunk and you know yeah sleep with him to to produce mm -hmm. offspring so yeah why would he okay. offer daughters? That that might be a question. Uh, he offered up the daughters because they were his possessions. They weren't if they were just engaged. They weren't married. They weren't owned by their new husbands. They right. they they were owned by Lot, so they were his to give away. They were just possessions. That's a great insight. Right? Yeah, Brenda, that's yeah. a great insight. There's not a real high value of women. <laughs> in that day and age yeah unfortunately. they were second um, class yeah second class considered property that type of thing okay yeah. Esty, what were you saying no she just brenda answered it oh okay yeah okay anybody else uh want to have uh any more interaction on this first clobber passage okay just one last thing i'm sorry no, um, i don't I, I don't think all of the men of the city went. I think 
I, I think it was more of a, I don't think they literally all went. Otherwise, his two, he wouldn't have had to go look for his two son-in-laws. They would have been right there. Could be. Um, yeah. But I, I don't know. I don't know how that went down. I really don't. Um, the storyteller is trying to say that this group of men, both young and old, uh, all gather around. We don't know how young we're talking. And uh, we don't know. I guess maybe the storyteller is trying to get us to see that Lot and his family, like Noah and his family, are the only ones that were to be delivered. And, um, you know, the particulars, again, if we had a dash cam on a camel back then, uh, what would we see? I don't know. But, you know, it's just one of those things that, you know, we just hear the text as it sets us up to feel the pathos of the story. And I think that's what's happening in chapter 19. Anyone else before we sign off? Okay, hopefully you we're able to engage with the story a little bit and um, hopefully you'll see that it's not a simplistic proof text that is often made out to be. Okay. So, all right, we'll call it a night. I hope you have a good rest of the evening and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Okay. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.